the sympathetic nervous system is going to say fight, flight, or freeze. And you can't run away. You can't fight with a doctor. So you're going to freeze. So those pelvic floor muscles might just clamp down and freeze. So to, to sort of release that fascia, um, we talk about doing a, a slow, sustained stretch that really is more about a communication system with the brain and the neurochemicals. So it's not just yanking on a muscle or pushing on a muscle for a trigger point release. It's a, a slow, sustained stretch. And it's really fascinating and wonderful to see the results that you can obtain from that. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. After personally struggling for years upon years with chronic health issues that traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals could not resolve, I finally found relief in true healing through a functional medicine approach. Since then, I've dedicated my life to helping patients around the world transform their health by getting to the root cause of symptoms and restoring their body's natural ability to heal. This experience has shown me that a true state of wellness often requires an integrated approach that brings in multiple disciplines and modalities. In this podcast, I will interview a variety of practitioners and health professionals to educate and empower you on the full spectrum of tools that are available to reclaim your health and vitality. If you are struggling with health challenges and you are not getting the answers or results you feel you deserve, or you simply want to optimize your health and take a proactive approach to wellness, this podcast is for you. And if you like this show and find it helpful, be sure to tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another amazing episode of the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. Today we are joined by Amy Healy and we're diving into pelvic floor physical therapy. So Amy is a wealth of knowledge. She's been a physical therapist for over 30 years and has never stopped her pursuit of continuing education. She became certified as a lymphedema therapist in 2005 and as a pelvic rehabilitation therapist in 2019. She believes in the art of manual therapy, myofascial release, and the science of exercise progression. She is extremely passionate about helping women maintain vibrancy and to facilitate a healthy transition through perimenopause and menopausal years but she also loves helping men and women with a host of other symptoms and conditions related to pelvic floor dysfunction. She works with people with chronic constipation, gastrointestinal dysfunction, incontinence, pelvic pain, and so much more. I highly encourage you to listen to this entire episode because it is chock full of clinical nuggets that can really be life-changing. I learned so much from talking with Amy, and I know you will too, So please help us spread the word about how effective this therapy can be. I know you're going to love this episode. Let's dive in and get started. Well, hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me on the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I've been looking forward to our conversation, and I just can't wait to uh, talk to you more about what you do. Oh, great. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to share what I know and what I'm learning about pelvic floor rehab. So That's great. awesome. Well, you're doing some great work. Just to Thank start you. off, I already have you know several patients who have been seeing you, and they have nothing but positive things to say, and you've really helped them in many ways. So I'm just grateful to have you in our toolbox as well. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, before we dive into the the details of what you do and uh, the conditions that you help, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background and what inspired you to get involved with physical therapy and pelvic floor therapy more specifically? 
Great, great. Well, I've been a PT for 30 years, um, and I've done a, a different assortment of, of types of therapy. I did inpatient and outpatient rehab and orthopedic and neurological. But in the last 10 years, I've really focused on pelvic floor rehab. And the evolution kind of happened just because I like to go to continuing education classes, especially when they're in places like Florida or Chicago. So it's just fun to, to learn. And I went to a Herman and Wallace pelvic floor class. So Herman and Wallace they, it's an institute for pelvic floor rehabilitation education, and it was founded by Kathy Wallace, who's out in Seattle, and Holly Herman, who's in Boston. And it's sort of a new field within physical therapy. So when I was in school, we didn't look at the pelvis during our anatomy exams, and we didn't talk about the pelvic floor muscles. So it's it's new in the last, I don't know, 20 or, or 30 years, maybe. Um, and it's really exploding right now because it's a, a topic that that women especially are interested in discussing. So when I went to the first pelvic floor class with Herman and Wallace, I, I really, really enjoyed the fact that we were talking about pelvic floor conditions in an open and honest way. So there was no shame. And it sounds sort of simplistic, but the thing that I took away was what is normal with a pelvic floor? Because we don't talk about what normal physiology is with a pelvis. Um, so for my own story, I was constipated. I had a, a really significant um, constipation history and that sort of coexisted with an eating disorder. And I never really knew what I could do to treat that and to, to, to make that better. And I was seeing doctors, but I didn't bring it up because I didn't know that it was a condition that can be treated. So that really was a game changer for me, taking the, the pelvic floor class and learning that, yes, these are conditions and yes, they can be treated and you can get better. So it, it's great. It's wonderful. Absolutely. That is awesome. Yeah. And, and it's just, again, so interesting it, it, a lot of people I don't think think about pelvic floor therapy, right? And yeah. it was new to me not too long yeah. ago as well, but realizing how many different areas, uh, you know, pelvic muscles, pelvic floor muscles can impact in the body uh, yeah. is just, is just amazing. Again, cor just coordinating the fact that everything is all, everything is connected. There's no isolated systems. And when yeah. you have a problem in one area it can absolutely affect another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the piece that I really liked the most about these pelvic floor classes is that there is no shame um, that, that you can talk openly on and honestly about conditions and how they coexist with other things. Because frequently people who are constipated also have migraines because when the, the stool is sitting within your colon and your body's reabsorbing water from it, there's excess estrogen and toxins and that sort of thing. So I think people don't know what's related. And that's what's fascinating working with patients is they, when they give me their story, they don't even know the, the whole story and how things enter, enter work. So it's, it's lovely to help people. Absolutely. And, and I know you mentioned this before, it just, you know, people just don't know what's abnormal. They don't know yeah. that it's not normal to go a week and not have a bowel movement. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. It, it, I mean, or to, like you mentioned before having painful intercourse or yeah. problems with incontinence. I mean, a lot of these things, people unfortunately just play off as they're just getting older and this has to be life from here on out when in fact there are many interventions and strategies that can be utilized to improve uh, their health and their quality of life. And that's what I'm excited to 
dive yeah. into oh, today. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Great. So I can't wait to get started. Awesome. Well, okay. I, well, I know that there are a variety of techniques uh, as a physical therapist that, that people, that therapists will actually use in their practice. And mm -hmm. I know that you offer uh, several techniques or focus on a couple of different areas that people may not be familiar with. Do you mind starting off by just telling us a little bit about myofascial release? Because I know that is something that you utilize mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So myofascial release, uh, I practice the, the version John Barnes myofascial release. So the idea is that the fascia is everywhere. So when we did gross anatomy in school, we, we took the, the fascia away from the organs and the muscles and peeled it away. And we thought it was just a packing material and it wasn't really important or essential. And in the cadaver, it was kind of crusty and yellow and yucky. But in real life, the fascia is sort of this white glistening material, and it serves a purpose much more than just a packaging material because it's interconnected. It's around the organs, it's around the muscles, it's around the nerves, it's in the nerves, it's in the bone, it's around the bone, it's everywhere. And the idea that fascia is more important than we gave it credit for is gaining momentum throughout the medical community. So there's an international fascia conference every year in Europe. And, and there are doctors who really now recognize that, that it is a contrib it contributes to pain. So some of the sort of interesting things about fascia that I didn't know before getting into myofascial release is that fascia is actually contractile. So when um, you have a trauma, like if you have an injury or surgery or that sort of thing, the fascia isn't just this sort of cushioning that just sort of lays there, but your body wants to protect it. So the fascia actually tightens around the organ and it, or around the muscle and holds things. And John talks about how the trauma from surgery or from an injury may actually contribute to this neurological loop where the fascia stays sort of tight. And he talks about it in science terms, so it's not woo-woo. Um, he talks a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system and how the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetics are our autonomics and they sort of drive our systems. And the sympathetic is fight, flight, or freeze. And let's say you have a, a traumatic pregnant or childbirth and you have something that happens to your pelvic floor that you didn't anticipate, the sympathetic nervous system is going to say fight, flight, or freeze. And you can't run away. You can't fight with a doctor. So you're going to freeze. So those pelvic floor muscles might just clamp down and freeze. So to, to sort of release that fascia, um, we talk about doing a, a slow, sustained stretch that really is more about a communication system with the brain and the neurochemicals in the endocrine system and the, the neurological system. So it's not just yanking on a muscle or pushing on a muscle for a trigger point release. It's a, a slow, sustained stretch. And it's really fascinating and wonderful to see the results that you can obtain from that. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. what are some of the symptoms that people will experience if they're having problems with their fascia? Like what I know there's probably being that it's everywhere, there's a wide variety of things that you would see, but what are some common examples? I think that, so I'll just say a surgery. So if you have an abdominal surgery, you've got a lot of layers of fascia there. So you've got the peritoneum on the outside, and then you've got the muscular layers and fascia between those, and then fascia around the organs and fascia within the organs. So if you have like, let's just say a hysterectomy, the, the surgeon goes in and cuts through all of those layers and it affects the, the organs and it affects the muscles so that the fascia might bind down and sort of hold and constrict and hold things in. So you might have issues with the bowel and bladder because the, the bowel might not have room to expand because of the adhesions and tissue. Um, you might have nerve pain because the nerve goes through two layers of the abdominal wall muscle, the um, internal 
oblique and the transverse abdominis, or one of them does. So you you can develop a myriad of symptoms, but I think pain and, and stiffness and tightness and altered function are the, the, the biggest ones. And I think what's sort of surprising sometimes is the symptoms can occur at a site that's not where the, the dysfunction is. So the sacral plexus lives right by the tailbone, the, the coccyx. And if, if there's restrictions there, you can have foot pain. And you might not think to tell your, your doctor that you fell on your tailbone when you have foot pain, but that is significant. And that's what I really like about myofascial release is you sort of widen the lens and you look at the whole body and you don't just say, I'm treating the foot. Or I'm treating exactly. The yeah. yeah. Cause I'm sure there's lots of practice, you know, it's easy for a specialist to get caught up in an isolated injury or an isolated location, you know, and forget about things that preceded or that could impact that. So it's just, it's so fascinating to hear how, again, how everything's connected and how you can have one dysfunctional area contribute to a, a myriad of symptoms that can be felt systematically throughout the body. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that's encouraging. And so, so tell me a little bit about, you know, what is your approach to myofascial release? Is it more, is it deep? tissue? Is it pressure? Is it just people doing exercises or stretching? Is it a combination of everything? Yeah, it's a combination of everything. I think that it's sort of looking at the person in front of you and, and listening to their story. And I found that listening is the most important skill that a, that a clinician can have. Because if I sit there and validate people's feelings and listen to the, the whole timeline and don't rush them, then they usually tell me what the problem is. So they they come in and they they give me that essential information. So I it varies based on what the dysfunction is. But recently I've been doing a little bit. I mean I do pelvic floor work and I've been doing a little bit more for the gastrointestinal system, which is a little bit deeper. The ileocecal valve, where the small intestine and large intestine come together. There's a, a technique there that can stimulate peristalsis to move things through the system. I do um, releases along the bladder because the bladder can become uh, restricted so that it can't expand to hold urine. So it's superficial and it's deep depending on what the symptoms are. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about that because I love okay. that topic. So let's talk a little bit more about the ileocecal valve. So one of the things that a lot of people are struggling with that come to our practice is digestive dysfunction. And uh, one of the more common things that people who are listeners may be familiar with is a, a SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot of, it's a big problem for a lot of people. Traditionally, people are put on antibiotics and they may improve for a week, a two or two or a month month or two, and mm -hmm. then boom, they're right back in that same position and with the same symptoms struggling. And, and mm -hmm. like you mentioned before, it, I mean, when you have digestive issues, it's not just about feeling bloated or gassy, but it can affect your entire body, your mental clarity, your energy, your hormones, mm -hmm. your immune system, the list goes mm -hmm. on and on and on. So back to SIBO, you know, I, I love that you said that because we're always trying to figure out why, why is it there to begin with? Sometimes you need treatment, my antimicrobials or antibiotics, and they can be effective for, from a symptom standpoint, but we always have to dig deeper on that root cause and ileocecal valve dysfunction is, is a huge problem mm -hmm. we see with people with, with SIBO. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of options out there for treating that. So it's so awesome to hear yeah. you say that you've got some tools yeah. that are really effective for that. Yeah. And honestly, I've, I've seen 
some of your work with that and been very impressed. I mean, people who have been struggling with digestive symptoms for years are finally seeing some improvement in keeping those symptoms at bay for extended periods of time, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, it's wonderful. It is wonderful. And there's a lot that we can teach patients to do on their own. So I try to show them how they can do their own abdominal massage. So it's not necessarily that they need to come and see me weekly forever. So that's what I really love about this approach too, is is sort of self-efficacy and teaching people how they can manage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love how you mentioned too, the, the fight or flight response and the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. We talk about that a lot because that is a big part of digestive dysfunction. And, yeah. and, and again, you can have traumas, you know, physically or, or emotionally that lead to problems with that, that central nervous system. But if, if people are not, I'm sure you see it where if they're mm-hmm. not addressing their stressors or mm-hmm. their uh, emotional trauma, that they're not going to recover physically as quickly as we would like to see them do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. that is awesome. Well, great. Well, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot of uh, people uh, interested in just that in itself, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, but tell me a little bit, I know you do a couple of different approaches. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about visceral uh, mobilization, or mm-hmm. I know, you know, I've heard the term visceral manipulation. Is that mm-hmm. along the same mm-hmm. lines? It is. It is. So basically um, we don't treat organs. So I don't treat a liver or treat a bladder really, but there's something called the viscerosomatic reflex and a somatovisceral reflex. And what that means is that the brain is always paying attention to everything that's going on. And if you have frequent bladder infections, then the bladder, the lining of the bladder can get irritated. And so that sends a message to the brain and the brain wants to protect the bladder. So it sends messages down to the pelvic floor muscles and, and into the fascia around the bladder and it contracts and it holds it tight. And, and that's called a viscerosomatic. So the, the bladder is causing um, issues with muscles. And the same thing can happen um, with a somatovisceral reflex. So the, the muscles can be tight and you can feel pain in the bladder. So for me, it doesn't always matter what the chicken or the egg, what started it. It's just breaking up that cycle. So I do visceral mobilization involves loosening things because you you breathe 20,000 times a day. And when you breathe, your respiratory diaphragm descends and it comes back up and it's not in isolation. Your liver sits right here. And if you have adhesions, if your falciform ligament, which bisects the liver is, is sort of tight, then you're going to get a twisting when, when you breathe each time and you're not going to get that normal motion. And that actually the falciform ligament from the liver actually attaches to the umbilicus, which attaches to the bladders. It's so fascinating how everything can be interrelated. So breathing with pelvic floor issues is a huge, huge, huge intervention, because if you can breathe well and get that good diaphragmatic excursion, then you have an absolute change on the bladder and the rectum, an absolute change. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I'm sure everybody thinks, oh, breathing, you know, it just comes natural, not a big deal. I've got that down. When in fact, probably the vast majority of us don't breathe very well, because everybody, you know, is again, go, go, go on edge, stressed out, just not taking time. And and some of those basic interventions, it's just amazing how effective they can be. It is. It is. So I oftentimes recommend the um, Calm app or the Headspace app so that people can work on it in a structured way. Because I think our society is always like we need to do something and, and just breathing isn't enough. So so anything that I can add into it. Yoga is great. Um, going for a walk and in, in focusing on your breathing. So whatever the person really enjoys, I think, is the, the key. 
Absolutely. Whatever you're, you're going to do and make work. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but we that. all, we're all guilty of it. We all, you get caught up in the moment and need to take some time to just yeah. take a breath. And uh, it's just, it, we all always feel better after doing so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do these approaches, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how, how do they compare with traditional physical therapy or traditional massage therapy? Mm-hmm. Is there a big difference in the approaches? No, I think that there are a lot of similarities between um, between the specialty care and, and traditional PT. I think that what what I try to do and what pelvic floor therapists try to do is to sort of widen the lens and and look at a person as a whole person. So it's not just a bladder; it's a bladder that's attached to a human being, and and looking at everything. So considering the biopsychosocial model and and really expanding on that. And the myofascial release really does that in a nice way because you're you're really getting to the to the root of the trauma, the root of the issue. Um, and it's a lot of work. It's not easy. So it's not as though people come in and say, oh, I'm ready for my massage because it does sometimes trigger memories and trigger bad feelings and 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 it shouldn't be painful, but it, it's not easy. Nothing in pelvic floor rehab is easy, I would say. So the, the patients, I'm really so proud of the patients and the work that they do because it's it's pretty brave to, to put yourself out there and say, I have this issue and, and, and this is what happened to me. So I've been fortunate enough to, to work with wonderful, wonderful people. I know it's so nice to, I mean, we say the same thing. We just get the most amazing patients and just feel so blessed to be able to do this each and every day. And, you know, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. So I know, you know, you keep mentioning pelvic floor therapy and I know I'm really interested to learn more about that, but for those who aren't really familiar with the pelvic Mm -hmm. floor, can you explain a little bit more about what the, the muscles of the Mm -hmm. pelvic floor are and why they're so important to so many different things? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have um, a model here. So if if you're just listening, you can't see it, but I will explain it as we go. And I don't know how clear it is, but this is your pelvis right here. (laughs) Okay. So the pelvis is made up of of bones, the ileal bones, and then the sacrum in the back. And it's the, the bones are the sides of the bowl and the bottom is muscular. And it's three layers. The first layer is the superficial layer. And I'm going to use this here. (laughs) So this is the superficial layer right here. So the ischiocavernose, the transverse perineal is here, and then the external sphincter. And then the middle layer is one that actually smushes. This is my bladder. Well, not my bladder, but (laughs) a bladder. (laughs) The middle layer smushes the urethra right here into the pubic bone, and it maintains continence. And then the deepest layer right here is the levator ani. And that's made up of the puborectalis and um, the coccygeus. So that deep layer really supports the organs. So what's sort of unique for the pelvic floor is that it's innervated by all, I think, four nervous systems. So you've got or impacted by it because you've got the sympathetics, the parasympathetics, the enteric nervous system, and then the somatic nervous system. So you can't always control it the way that you want to. So there are people walking around with upregulated tight pelvic floors and they don't know it because that's all that they know. So it's, it's a muscle that's kind of hard to well, you can't see it, right? So it's hard to know what you're doing if you're lengthening it or or um, if you're tightening it and, and where it is. And it's also really important for hip stability and spinal stability. So it's actually 
a, a greater predictor in low back pain is whether someone is continent or incontinent than their BMI. Because if someone's incontinent, wow. that means their pelvic floor muscles are weak and they lose that stability. Because if you have a weak pelvic floor, you really just can't have that sort of basement to hold your spine. So it's part of the deep core that really, really gives you that, that stability. And I noticed you mentioned the enteric nervous system. So we kind of yeah. talked a little bit about the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about the enteric nervous system? Because that connects with some of the things you previously mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the enteric nervous system is actually the most primitive nervous system. And it's actually in charge of your brain in a weird sort of way. So the, the, the vagus nerve, can I jump to the vagus nerve? Yeah, <laughs> please nerve go for it. <laughs> And it goes from the, the brain down to the gut, down to the heart and down to the gut. So vagus is for wandering. So it's kind of wanders down there. And what I love about the vagus nerve is that it's primarily sensory. So your vagus nerve is always listening to your gut. It's always listening to your bladder. It's always listening to your heart. So it sends information to your brain for your brain to respond with, with neurotransmitters or neuropeptides or whatever it, it sends out. I, I love the idea that the nervous systems are always talking and that they are adapting and changing based on the conditions of, of the pelvis and of your gut and of your bladder. Awesome. Yeah. And again, getting get into that connection where the gut, you know, again, these pelvic floor muscles are, are directly connected with the gut and the brain and, you know, everything yeah. else. So if you have a problem there, it's going to lead to a variety yeah. of symptoms. And then I love, you know, again, that that sign of incontinence, that's really important, I think, for people to look out for because so many people suffer for that and from that. And again, mm -hmm. just blame it on getting older, when in fact, mm -hmm. you know, this may be an intervention that could really provide some relief. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that, that I like about the pelvic floor and I don't know that people understand is that it's not just about Kegels that, um, you can do Kegels alone till the cows come home and you won't regain continence probably because the, the incontinence is really caused by the pressure downward. So if you have stress incontinence, that's when you cough or sneeze, there's pressure down in your bladder. And it's that the pelvic floor muscles can't compress to hold the urethra against the pubic bone to maintain incontinence. So really the idea is treating the pressure with the pelvic floor and with incontinence. So we teach people how to breathe so that they don't have that increased abdominal pressure downward on the bladder. So it's, it's a lot of breathing strategies. And the the respiratory diaphragm and the, the pelvic diaphragm are meant to work together. So one reinforces the other. So when you inhale, the pelvic floor descends and the diaphragm descends. And then when you exhale, the pelvic floor comes up and the, the diaphragm comes up. And then the, the third diaphragm is really the glottis. So, so it's the pressure management is really the, the thing that um, is key and why I think skilled PT is better than unsupervised Kegels. Um, Cause right. they've actually done studies and they've said that not, the patients who do just Kegels and people who go to pelvic floor PT, the pelvic floor PT, the, the women get better than women. Oh, I'm sure. And I, it's funny you mentioned that because I just had a patient the other day who we were talking about pelvic floor and I think they were having incontinence, but they were convinced that their pelvic floor, there's nothing wrong with their pelvic floor because they do their Kegels, Kegels every yes. day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had that conversation and it was just, I mean, but I think a lot of people are under that assumption, which is great that they're being educated on Kegels, but there's so much more oh to it God. than yeah. uh, just that one intervention. 
Yeah. And sometimes we don't even want them to do Kegels. If someone has interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, and we really just want the, the muscles to relax and, and we want to get down to do the down training, we Kegels are really contraindicated. Um, so sometimes people are doing Kegels and it's actually not helping their condition and it may be worsening it. Wow. What what are some times in life where uh, people can expect or maybe see changes in their pelvic floor? Are there events mm-hmm. or particular uh, you know life points where they might see this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's governed by hormones because there's so many estrogen receptors in the pelvic floor area and region, and and I think that. Um, really the transitions in life. So, so the, the young adults going on birth control, even though they just use a little bit of estrogen now, I, I think it can be enough to cause issues with the pelvic floor. Pregnancy, f- hormones are fluctuating. And that's another time where things can c- sort of go askew with the pelvic floor. And then finally, menopause. So menopause is um, sort of the perimenopause years from I think 40, 48 to 53, it, it depends. But I think those perimenopause years can really be tough for people. And it's tough for people because they they know their mood swings and they know hot flashes. But what I don't think we talk about or recognize as much is the changes to the bone that we, we lose bone strength, that we are losing our heart protection, the estrogen benefits for our heart. And, and that we're also, we have cognitive changes. So the estrogen it's huge. There are 400, I think estrogen contributes to 400 functions in the human body. So, so it's, it's a, it's a thing. And, and I think that we need to be talking to our doctors about it and the, the changes that happen specifically in the pelvic floor. So if you're like in the fifties and you, you start to develop incontinence and you hadn't had it before, one of the reasons is that the, I've got, I'm holding my bladder up here for people who can see <laughs> The urethra here is meant to be this sort of soft tube and it's supposed to have moisture in it. So there's this passive closure system when you're younger, when you get older and estrogen dips, then this becomes more of a rigid tube and then you lose that that uh, passive closure. And so then you really need to rely on the pelvic floor muscles and the pelvic floor muscles lose strength as we age too. So it's three to 5% every decade after 35. So it's, it's, it's not that it's, hopeless and terrible. It's just that you can't live the life that you lived when you were in your twenties, when you're in your fifties, because you need to do something. You need a plan. Yeah. Now on that same subject, do you notice with pelvic floor, when women, you know, soon after menopause get on like a uh, natural hormone therapy, is Mm -hmm. there changes in the pelvic floor or do you notice Mm -hmm. improvements with some of those symptoms? I do. I do. And I know it's controversial. There's a lot about estrogen that's controversial, but I think that <laughs> that's think what we do is controversy. It's okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, the topicals, they've shown clearly that topical estrogen helps the pelvic floor period. I mean, it does, awesome. it just does. Yeah. And, and I think that there, we've been shying away from recommending estrogen because of the, the study uh, that, that said the heart risks increased. But I think that we need to have open and honest communication with patients because it's their choice, right? It's their choice. Yeah, it has to be individualized. So let me talk about that a little bit about the study, because okay. I'm very passionate about hormones. I think, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think they are underappreciated. And I think you know, we back, so what happened with that, for the listeners out there, the the women's health study came out at around 2000 and they were studying estrogen and progesterone therapy 
in uh, postmenopausal women to see if there was reduction in cardiovascular disease and bone health. And they actually stopped the study early because they found a, an increased, slightly increased risk in clotting and in uh, breast cancer. Uh, but they did see even in this group an, an improvement with bone health. So that was a for sure thing, but the risk didn't outweigh the benefits. But looking back, you know, this always happens with research, right? We, we come out where there's a full blown scare, you know, panic, and then more research is done. And, uh, and then we change our mind or we look at things a little different. And I think that's what happened with hormones. We're just not at the point where everybody is really coming up to date with the literature. But as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the topical bioidentical hormones have, you know, did not present with from in the research we have so far, it's showing did not present with those same risk. It was the synthetic equine hormones that really increase those risks. So, you know, that's something that everybody needs to be aware of and talk to their doctor about and figure out, you know, hormones aren't for everybody, but I think they are definitely underappreciated and not utilized to the full extent. And, and even that liter that research from the women's health study showed the sooner women start after menopause, the safer it is. And I think a lot of that's just related to the comorbidities that already develop as we age, but I, I love that you said that because yeah. it's it, it's more than just feeling youthful. Like you said, estrogen is important for the brain. It's important yeah. for the heart. It's important for, you know, sexual function and pelvic right. floor. It's important for, you know, almost everything. Like I said, 400 different, you know, receptors or different actions yeah. in the body. So not to get off on a tangent. No, but no, so I, love that I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Cause, cause people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. 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 And we're all learning. And we talked about this earlier. I mean, that's the beauty of what we do is because we have to keep researching and keep studying because our environment's changing, our literature's changing. And yeah. if we get caught up in an article that came out 20 years ago or say that came out 20 years ago, we're not really evaluating that and researching those conclusions. We're going to get stuck and in trouble and people aren't going to get better. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Yes. But well, thank you so much for, for bringing that up. So what, what are some of the changes that, you know, mm -hmm. around menopause that women can expect to see mm -hmm. related to mm -hmm. their pelvic floor changing and this mm -hmm. lack of estrogen? Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's sleep disruption because of the vasomotor changes. There are the hot flashes, but I think more importantly for heart health, your risk of a, a heart attack goes way, way up. And, and what I loved with the research that I did is, you know, of course they recommend 150 minutes a week of exercise and 75 minutes of that being strenuous. But there's a study out there that says that if you do 10 minutes a day, you still have cardioprotective benefits. So even if it's just walking up and down the stairs a few extra times, or even if it's just having a TheraBand by your desk and you're just doing some exercises, whatever you do, it's beneficial. So I think that was the, the huge thing for me because as a PT, I don't love to exercise, which is awful, but, but anyway, it's <laughs> right. It's, no, it's real. It's real. I appreciate it's real. That. It's so true. We're all, we all have yeah. other things we probably would rather be doing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and this isn't just for, for women, right? I mean, no, so we no, also see problems with men. I know one of the things you mentioned is with men who have prostate issues or have they yes. their prostate removed, they're often um, going to see pro changes with their pelvic floor. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I shouldn't forget the men. Yes. Yes. So, so men definitely have issues after um, prostate surgery because the prostate, I have a, a prostate or a male model here too. So this is a side section of a 
male pelvic floor. This is the bladder. So the bladder is above the prostate and the urethra actually goes through the prostate like the core of an apple. And what happens when they remove the prostate is the prostate is actually a passive support system. It actually closes the urethra. So, so men can rely on that prostate to hold urine in. And when they remove that, then suddenly those muscles have a lot of work to do. So it's, it's usually reversible. Usually people develop continence back again. But again, I think it's helpful to have the skilled PT helping with that and the abdominal pressures and, and work on it together rather than just doing Kegels. So yes. Absolutely. And so, so can you walk us through like what a, what a session looks like when you're when I know you mentioned doing breath work, you're doing physical, working on physical activity, you're working on yeah. specifics for health floor. So you're really working on a wide array of things, which is yeah. awesome. But what, what are you doing more specifically for someone with pelvic floor dysfunction for their pelvic floor? What, what kind of interventions are you implementing? Mm-hmm. So I I usually start with an evaluation and I just do a whole body evaluation. So I look at how someone's standing, I look at their posture, because posture is a huge contributor to pelvic prolapse and to pelvic um, incontinence. Because if the the pelvis is tipped forward, you have a little more stability um, because the organs are resting against the pubic bones. And if you're back a little bit more, then it's just a straight shot down. So working on posture is something that I do. I, I look at that. And then I look at the lumbar spine and the thoracic spine and I I look at range of motion and and strength and that sort of thing. I look at how someone can, um, I call it spinal loading, if if they can stand on one leg and not have a hip drop, because if the pelvic floor muscles aren't engaging, then they don't have that ability. I look at their ability to squat. The squatting is one of my favorite exercises because it opens up and stretches the pelvic floor. So a lot of that is traditional PT. Again, like I said, I listen to their story and I just sort of follow what their complaint is. So usually it's it's exercise. So I, I give people exercises and I try to tailor the exercise prescription specific to them and, and what's weak and what's tight for them. I do the myofascial release or the visceral mobilization. So usually about half of my session is sent, spent on manual work and then half or another quarter is spent on exercise instruction. And then another quarter might be just talking and listening and, and hearing the patient. So so it's, it's really tailored more for the manual therapy folks, because I find that the hands-on stuff really works well. And I don't really want to watch people do 10 sets of straight leg raises when they can do that at home. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I love it. So you're getting down to the nitty gritty when they come in yeah. and see you Absolutely. really taking that holistic approach, which I think is yeah. so important. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so what are, I know you've mentioned them throughout this talk and it's been great, but what, what are some common symptoms, you know, or conditions that might, uh, you know, put a red flag in people's ear that, Hey, maybe I need a, to you know, seek this out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because the thing that I've been noticing lately is that, um, well, there's the obvious. So the obvious things are incontinence. You shouldn't leak urine when you cough or sneeze, and you shouldn't leak urine when you put the key in the door or when you're walking to the bathroom. The other is constipation. You should have a soft formed stool once or twice a day. I mean, it's, it's okay to, to skip a day or two, but you should go weeks at a time and it shouldn't be painful when you have a bowel movement. I think people don't know that, that it shouldn't be painful and you shouldn't have to bear down. If you're following good dietary restrictions and staying hydrated, the stool should stay soft and you shouldn't need to, to push really hard to get the stool out. There are pain conditions. Um, so if you have pain, Pain. There's vaginismus and proctalgia fougere, and there's interstitial cystitis. There's lots of names to pelvic pain, but you basically shouldn't have pain in your pelvis, um, and you shouldn't have pain with urination and, and um, 
you shouldn't have pain with intercourse. And it's amazing how many people have pain with intercourse and they just power through. So those are the the things that people all ages, right? I mean, we've seen it young, young women and, and older women. I mean, it's not, it's more than just one thing I've seen in practice is that it's just blamed on, you know, low estrogen or the hormones again, and not, which could be part of it, but it's, they're not investigating the pelvic floor. uh, And and that's a lot of times what I see where people really get a lot of improvement. Yeah. 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 Cause the pelvic floor is really meant to expand quite a bit and tighten quite a bit. It's meant to, to have this excursion. So people talk about the range of motion for their biceps or the, or their shoulder, but the pelvic floor really does need to relax and drop and contract and come back up. So, so that's one thing that we really work a lot on with people who have pelvic pain conditions. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is I've seen more people who are limiting their activities because of incontinence or pain and just saying, well, I can't have intercourse or I can't kayak or I can't, you know, I had a woman who couldn't go on a cruise because she had fecal incontinence and she didn't know, she knew she couldn't manage it when she was um, on the cruise. So, so I think that people shouldn't just accept these things as unavoidable things with aging, but know that things can get better. They, they absolutely can get better. So you deserve to get back to running and, and going on vacation and, and all those things. You don't need to limit what you do because of absolutely. never accept, you know, dysfunction as the norm, you know, and, and we need to investigate yeah. those things fully, which unfortunately so many people, you know, are left thinking that there's no other solutions and that's just not acceptable. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. I agree. And yeah. another thing, just on that same note, I'm, you know, with kids too, this is, this is really important for not only adults, but, but kiddos as well. I just had a, uh, mm-hmm. a gentleman uh, who's, who is a young, he would think he's, you know, six or seven years old and he has had incontinence his entire life. And after doing pelvic, you know, some visceral manipulation, mm-hmm. it, he, I got a note a couple um, weeks ago saying he had the first, the first two nights uh, yeah. where he hasn't been incontinent. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. That is huge. And, and it was, you know, again, that combination approach, which just, in yeah. nobody thought about that, you know, exactly. I mean, it's, it's so exactly. important to, you know, if you're not getting solutions, make sure you're, you're continuing your search until you figure out exactly. resolution. Exactly. No, I agree. Well, that's awesome. And one of the things I always like to ask my guests is to share a real life story just to make it real, you know, about a patient or someone you've worked with who was struggling and you've done a little bit of this throughout. So it's already been great, but uh, you know, who is really struggling, who you came to see you and, and just what their process looked like and what their outcome was. Is there, do you have any stories on the back of your mind? I do. I, I've thought about a few, but the, the one that I want to share is a woman who had endometriosis. And I don't think we've talked about that yet, but endometriosis can be a very painful condition. It's where uterine tissue actually can grow outside of the, the uterus. So she'd had that her entire life and she'd had very, very painful periods and um, bloating and, and just a terrible quality of life where she really couldn't work really. I mean, it was significant. She had um, abdominal surgery, so she had the endo lesions excised. She had a hysterectomy, and they actually left her open on the table for a long time. And I can't remember why this the surgery was somewhere else; it wasn't local. But she had a lot of abdominal wall pain and pain in the pelvic floor where she couldn't have intercourse and constipation after that. So when she came to see me, she was quite upset with the medical community because she felt like this was done to her and, and uh, she, she wasn't getting the help that she needed. And some of the doctors were sort of minimizing her symptoms. I think we talked 
we talked earlier, maybe not in this conversation about the pelvis and, and the pudendal nerve going through the, the, the um, pelvis and pudendal is, is Latin for shame. And I think she felt like people were shaming her or telling her just, you know, get off the couch and get better. And, and they really didn't want to have these conversations with her. So the turning point, I started with her just doing just the Kegels um, and breathing. And she got a little bit better. Better, but not not completely better. But when we started to work on her scar, so she had this huge scar that went right from her sternum right down to her pubic symphysis because they really opened her up to, to remove all of these endo lesions. And, and when I started to work on her scar, everything softened, everything. So that's the myofascial release. And that's the piece that I think is really game changing because she was able to say, when I was working on her abdominal scar, I feel that in my rectum, like I feel that. And, and I think that's the turning point for women and men when you're treating them, when they're like, oh, like that's it, that's it. Because for, for 10, 20 years, she's had, she's had these pains, these symptoms, and, and no one's really validated it or said that there's something physical that's wrong and there's something physical that can be done to help you. So she, she got better. She's, she's not, she's having bowel movements. She's having intercourse. She's um, pain-free. And it was a, it was a challenge. It was, it was not easy because she had to do a lot of work to get there. She did a lot of stretching and a lot of breathing, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of work with dilators. We didn't talk about that, but when the pelvic floor is tight, sometimes women um, put in a, a, a dilator to help stretch the vaginal area. So she, she did the hard work. So it's not that people come in and, and they get fixed, right? They, right. they, they have to do the work. And I was very proud of her. That's yeah. awesome. What a great story. And it's, it's, it really is no matter what approach you're taking, it's a partnership, right? And yes. it's, it's yes. not about, you know, we try, yes, medications and pharmaceuticals have their time and place, but you know, it's really a lot of the time they're prescribed with the no resolution of what's actually going on from a problem standpoint. So we need to be investigating that. And, uh, you know, the best things always come after a little bit of work. And uh, that's a that's a prime example. And it just makes me think about, you know, what you're with, with her situation, all of these people who have C sections, or mm-hmm. who have, you know, abdominal surgeries, or, you know, have, you know, like I said, have hysterectomies, who are going to have all of this scar tissue and all of, you know, the, the problems that can result from that. So that's just so good to hear that, you know, there's another another set of tools that can be helpful for that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, well, that's awesome. Well, I'm so just, this has been a great talk and uh, I know there's so many people out there who could benefit from your services. So for our listeners who um, are tuning in or, and are thinking, man, maybe that's something that could help me. uh, How do we find you? How do they find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? So I just opened a private practice in Lebanon, New Hampshire. So I'm right on the green, right above Salt Hill. Um, It's on the fourth floor, 423. And I am... very excited to to begin working with people. I've I've seen a trickle of people, and I'm going to start to to see more as um, we branch out. So it's exciting, and I welcome doctors' referrals, patients' self referrals. Um, my phone number can I can I say it? Yeah, <laughs> if you want yeah, to send yeah. it, absolutely, and then I'll I'll yeah. post it in the show notes as well okay. with with your website. Yeah. yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. So yeah, give me a call because sometimes people want to talk first. There are people who don't want to dive right in. They want to just get to know me and make sure that it's going to be a fit. So I I completely understand that. So if, if you want to just call and talk, then that's great. 
That's wonderful. Absolutely. So what's your called, website? Do you mind telling us your website? No, I'd love to. Yeah. So Great. it's True North Pelvic PT. So True North Pelvic PT. That's great. So check it out. And uh, I know, you know, like I said, I, you know, I've already had several patients who have gone to you and had nothing but positive things to say, and we've seen it clinically as well as them feeling better. So I just appreciate the work that you're doing. And, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. It was a nice, nice discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I like to end our uh, podcast with is just one health tip that, uh, you know, people can implement uh, no matter where they are or or what age they are, you know, to really try to take their health to the next level uh, with the exception of exercise, because everybody always says that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not going to say it. No, No, what I am going to say is, we can learn resilience, self-care. So self-care, I think that we live our lives and we we do what needs to get done, but we don't take care of ourselves. And I, I think over and over again, the success stories, the people who get well, they are, they are practicing self-care. So it's not selfish to meditate in the morning. It's not selfish to go out and go for a walk. Um, I think that we tend to stay busy, but we don't do the things that we need to do. So I, I feel like it's not optional. Self-care really shouldn't be optional. It should be obligatory. Like you need, you need to do it. So, so whether that's, it's whatever brings you joy. Cause I truly believe that if you do what brings you joy, then the serotonin will go up. The cortisol levels will go down. So it's just this cascade of effects. Yeah. That's Amazing advice. And I agree 100%. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I really do appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you on again. We could talk about so many different things. Oh, so many things. I know. I I love nerding out about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, Well, awesome. Well, I will, we'll definitely post uh, your information in the show notes so people can get in touch and uh, I hope you have an amazing day. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. Don't forget, you can join the Grassroots private Facebook group to connect with fellow health seekers and find practical tips to improve your state of wellness. Just search Grassroots Community on Facebook to join. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you're looking for a comprehensive program to reclaim your state of wellness with cutting-edge testing, a team of providers to hold you accountable, and a structured plan of action to not only get you well, but to keep you well in the years to come, check out our adaptation programs online at grassrootsfunctionalmedicine.com. Thanks again for listening, and have a blessed day.